You are listening to Your Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Now here's your host, Hannah Moore, a CFP and the owner of Guiding Wealth Management. Thanks, Charlie. Before we get into today's show, I want to personally say a huge congratulations to those of you who passed your CFP exam this past week. It's an incredible accomplishment and something you should be very proud of. If this is you, we want to celebrate with you. Send me an email at hannah at guidingwealth.com with your name and address, and we have something that we want to send you. If you took the test and didn't pass, take a break and keep going. So much of life is getting through these hard things. Today we have Chad Smith, certified financial planner and part owner of Financial Symmetry. Chad shares his career journey as starting as an intern and now part owner of his company. He's been with the same company that full time and shares what has made him successful. He's also a fellow podcaster, so be sure to check him out. Let's jump right in. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Chad. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Yeah. Well, can you give the listeners just some background information on you and what did your career path look like? Yeah, it seems my story's becoming more and more rare in our industry, I guess, because way back in 2000, whenever I was graduating from college, it it, it kind of seemed like the path was paved before an opportunity was even there. Not to say that I always knew what I wanted to do, but my dad had always kind of stressed the importance of picking a career where I could make a good living. And, you know, some of my family members had had success in accounting. So I felt, okay. That, you know, I could work with people and, and I do like numbers. So I figured accounting was going to be my path. So I went to uh, NC State here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and, and was majoring in accounting. Things were going well until I hit cost accounting, the class, and <laughs> that didn't go so well. So I figured it was time to change that dream. And, and I stumbled upon a personal finance class, as probably many have in our industry. And I just became enamored with the magic of compounding, right? And I felt like this, okay, and and the class was actually taught by a CFP, believe it or not. And that was, you know, NC State didn't have a, a, uh, a financial planning program. So this was just within the business management department. So that excited me. He told stories of meeting with clients and the different situations that and problems that he had solved. And I thought, man, this is, it, it was one of the first classes that I was actually excited to go back and see. Kind of like a, a sequel to a movie. <laughs> Every day it seemed like I wanted to go back and find out. Okay, what is he going to tell us today about what situations he was dealing with and what conversations he was having? So that kind of got me curious about the industry. And then lo and behold, you know, back then I had to go to a computer lab to get emails, right? We didn't have computers in our rooms. So that dates me a little bit. But I uh, had had seen on, a, on an online job posting board, there was a actual financial planning firm seeking paid interns in Raleigh. I thought, is this too good to be true? You know, not to mention it's a paid internship because a lot of the internships at that time, you know, were not paid for friends of mine. So, you know, they, they were asking for just to send a couple things that we felt we were good at in the, uh, the job posting and what talents and interests we had Re- really easy questions. I sent off some answers and, and then, I I got my first internship. So, you know, it was, it was a pretty easy process. I mean, I interviewed at a few other firms like Northwestern Mutual Life, of course. I'd, I'd done some some uh, cold calling for our our university's annual giving fund, and I'd had a little bit of success with that. So I thought, okay, well, you know, I might be able to go that route. And even though it's not fun going down a list and getting turned down over and over and over, 
Uh, but I did have a, a little bit of success. So I thought that was going to be the route, but I got that email from the financial planning firm here in the, in the area. And that was my last semester of my senior year. So kind of late in the process, but I thought, let's give this thing a try. And I'm still here, <laughs> believe it or not. That's what's rare about it, I think, because a lot of people that I talk to in our industry now, of course, have you know moved uh, to different firms, different careers, started out in something else, started their own firms. And I think I've been extra lucky, and, and I'll talk about it more as we go along, that I've been able to stick out you know, this process here for now 17 years. So you graduated and then went into a, un, or a paid internship, and then that led into a full-time job. Is that I actually, right? I started the internship before I graduated, okay. um, maybe five months before or four months. And, you know, and then I, at that point in time, that was one of the things that you know, I've, I've heard some other people on your podcasts and, and talked with other people. You, in this career, you got to take initiative, right? Um, you're meeting with clients and you're, and you're dealing with tough problems. And you got to be able to have courage and and know and be confident in, in what you're dealing with. And I didn't have a lot of that early on, but I knew I liked what I was doing at the internship. And I thought, hmm, I wonder, because <laughs> I, I wasn't being approached. It was I was the first intern with another guy. We were hired at the same time. He didn't he didn't make it, so I was able to hold on at least through the the internship, thankfully. And then I was able to parlay that into a full time position, but I had to ask for it. Right. There was not a position there. So, I, you know, that's one of the kind of lessons uh, that I would say to young planners out there or young people wanting to break into the planning uh, career. You know, don't be afraid to ask for things. You never know what will happen. So I asked and he said, let me get back to you. <laughs> a couple of days passed. He was like, yeah, I think we can create a position here. So. So did you give him like numbers to. No. For that asker, okay. I did not. I was just, I, I was just hoping there was an opportunity in the beginning, right? Because this was totally new to me too. I mean, I didn't know anybody else in a financial planning position. There wasn't a lot of financial planning um, or, or people interested in financial planning that I was going to school with because it wasn't a financial planning program. So this was all new territory to me, and I just knew I liked it or, or, or was interested in it, and thought, hmm, let's just see if there's a position here because I. I thought it would be more attractive after doing a couple things in the office and then talking with uh, the senior partner at that time. I thought this is going to be a little more fun probably and a little bit easier if I had a guaranteed salary versus going to a firm where I didn't and had to cold call and it was strictly based on commission. So there was a little bit of a fear factor there too that I felt, hmm, if I just ask, let's see what happens here. Maybe it can be a little more of a solid long-term career choice. So how many employees were actually working at that firm at that point? We had three at that so point. So you were, so were you were number three or four? I was number three. Yeah. You're number three. And yeah. then how large is your, how many employees does your firm have now? We have four, uh, let's see, we just hired three more. We have 14 and then four interns. Okay. So you guys have really grown yeah. in yeah. the 17 years. Yeah. So what were some of the distinctive steps that you took for success? I know you've already hit on some of these, but mm -hmm. well, and, and I had some, I would, I would say bumps in the road along the way. Right. So I, I think I prepared myself obviously by going to a school with a, a desire of being in a certain career path. Right. So I, I knew I wanted to be in the financial area. I just didn't know exactly what, and 
I would say one of the things that my parents instilled in me early on was just try things, right? So I had 12 jobs before I graduated college, uh, just trying different things. Everything from being a stop, slow, turn guy on a construction crew, you know, to, to waiting tables to, I mean, I had some crazy things, but <laughs> the customer service manager at a grocery store, you know, doing the annual fund. So I had a lot of different experiences in doing things. And it was kind of like a trial and error thing. I, I knew what I liked. I knew what I didn't. You know, working in a furniture factory in the heat of summer in North Carolina, that was not something, you know, that I wanted knew. I, I realized early on I didn't want to do that. So I would say one of the success habits early on was just to try things. And then you can figure out what you like and what you don't, because a lot of people are just scared to get started trying things. Um, secondly, you know, I, I said, yes, <laughs> whenever things pass by my, you know, uh, opportunities came along, I just said, yes, like the opportunity for the financial planning paid position. I didn't really know what all was going to happen there, but I just sent off an email and said, Hey, let's see what happens. So those are some of the early things, but I, the bumps in the road, I would say, and, and I know this is not your question, but I think it's pertinent to this, is how slow it took me to get through the CFP coursework, right? Because I started um, right out of school, and then it really took me about five years before I made it through the coursework and actually you know, passed the CFP exam to begin working with clients. I was communicating with clients, but I was somewhat comfortable uh, where I was. I was not I mean, it was, I knew it wasn't going to be a long-term career path, but I, I was comfortable enough, you know, where I was still going out trying to meet my wife and <laughs> other things that early 20-year-olds do. So uh, that, that took precedence at that time. But looking back, of course, you know, everything happens for a reason. But if I had one thing I could have changed at that point, it would have been, um, I guess, putting more emphasis on studying even earlier because uh, who knows what might have happened if I would have you know, finish that in two or three years. So I would say that's a success habit or a lesson learned on my part that I think um, a new planner or, or someone that's new coming into the industry really dig in and, and, and just, you know, be voracious about reading all those materials and trying to get through the CFP coursework and, and pass the exam because that now that's table stakes generally, you know, that's, that's the, you, you got to get started there for firms really to be super interested in you. Mm-hmm. Well, and as somebody who, I mean, I assume you're in a hiring position at your firm or mm-hmm. have influence on that. Uh, from that perspective, I mean, you guys assume that people are going to have it by the time they walk in the door or? I don't, we don't assume it. And this is interesting too about our firm, I would say, because, you know, we start, we have so many interns. Um, I, I'm, I'm almost positive we've had now around a hundred interns since we first started. Wow. Right. So that's a lot. I mean, we've had 17 years, so we've been through a lot of different people. Um, and so we have a good pool to start picking from. And, and most of our employees have come from that over the years out of the intern program. And we, uh, I don't think I'm thinking back. I don't think we've lost anybody that uh, no, no one has actually left our firm that I can remember. So, you know, that's, um, maybe it speaks to the culture, but, but I think it, it helps that they're there as an intern, they learn the culture you know, they learn the systems and then they can spend some time studying and, and earning the, the CFP after college because most of our hiring is done from our local university, NC State here, and they don't have a financial planning program within the bachelor's degree like others do. I think Georgia and Texas Tech do. So, so that retention rate is pretty incredible because a lot of the financial planning 
firms and really the people that work for those firms that I talk mm-hmm. to, there's usually high turnover or right. it can be high turnover. What does your company do uniquely to help with that retention rate? Or maybe a better way of kind of framing that question would be somebody who's looking for a job. How do they know when they found a firm like yours rather than a firm that they're just going to turn out? That's a great question. I wish I could answer it completely. I know what we do, obviously, and I know how our firm was structured in the beginning. And I think that has a lot to do with it. So, you know, interviewing out of school, I was coming in to, I mean, really a I guess he had to be in his early 30s at that time, our senior partner. Right? So he was a young visionary founder, basically, that that opened up conversations early on. So I think one of the things that, I guess, keeps people interested here and, and um, feel like there's value down the road is the conversations start very early on about your potential here and what you can become. So that means whether whether that means you're just your career track alone or if that is ownership. Uh, so, you know, a lot of firms now, I think it, it, that's a struggle or a lot of conversations I hear on different podcasts and conferences is the, the problem with succession planning and the issue of the older generation giving up control and passing it to the younger generation, right? And how, how that's going to get done. Now, it's not like ours is the smoothest uh, around, but I think there's a lot of thought that's put into it. And there's um, genuine concern for the clients. So putting the client's interest first, right? That's part of the the genesis of why that ownership program was was put in so early on, I think, from our founder. I know I'm jumping around. Sorry. Oh, you're fine. <laughs> but uh, I, I think, you know, that gives people something to work towards, right? And if you can, if you can have uh, something, if you can see yourself 10 years down the road and see realistically in numbers, and potential ownership and potential impact that gives you purpose. Right. And that's kind of what we're all looking for. And if you get to help some people along the way and establish some relationships where you get direct feedback on that, who wouldn't want that? Right. I think we're all looking for that in some capacity, but it enables us to use our talents in the best way too, because in our firm, you don't have to become a planner, right? That's not, you can go the operations track and ultimately become an owner that way as well. We have an owner who's an operations manager. So I think it just, as long as you have that goal uh, and, and, and a clear goal set out there that this is the way that things could work, that, that inspires you. And I think it, it makes people want to stick around. Okay. Well, let's jump to your partnership if, you're, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so how did your obviously your partner at your firm now. So how did those conversations start? Again, I got to give credit to our, our founder here. He, he actually started the conversation. Um, and, and I think his idea was right around kind of pairing it with passing a CFP exam early on. Cause it was just actually at that point, it was just me and him. One of the, we had started with three and, and one of the other people had left. So um, we had hired, I think one other person and maybe two at that point in time. So we were around three or four employees when those conversations first started happening. Right. So I was, you know, meeting with a few clients, um, just getting started, but he, he brought up the idea of ownership and said, Hey, this is, you know, are you interested in this? I think because I think there's an angle from his side, he wanted to retain good talent, not to, 
not to say that I'm the most talented planner there, but I think he saw potential, right? And he and and when there's potential, you want to make sure that you offer ownership early on so that so that people don't leave. I I hear that a lot as well. There's frustrations that the ownership conversations never brought up, right? And and they don't want to bring it up, and it's awkward because you don't understand all the dynamics and how that's going to work down the road and the emotions that get involved. But so I would say I'm super lucky in that aspect because there's not many founders that actually bring up the idea of ownership and, and having a plan for it. I would say multi-year, even multi-decade uh, plan of how that would, would play out over time. So I think that's such a good point that continuity of staff is a huge benefit to a business owner. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Turnover can be very, very painful for businesses and, and cost quite a bit of money. Yeah. We're thankful that we hadn't really had to deal with that very. I mean, you know, we have interns that come and go. Right. But generally, uh, you know, the staff has has been been with us. And, and that certainly helps because the, the knowledge alone that they have and the experience certainly compounds over time as well. Mm-hmm. So you've talked a little bit about some of the unique elements of your firm, um, but what else made your partnership different um, than others? Well, I would say I was a lot younger <laughs> than a lot of other people being offered um, ownership. So, and I think there, there was, it, it was set up in a way that there's potential to buy in down the road, right? So it wasn't a buy-in of let's, let's go ahead and offer you you know, 25 or 50% of the firm, it was, let's offer you 5% and let's see how that goes. Right. I mean, is that, it's something you're interested in. It's a piece and it, and it gives you initiative because you're going to be responsible for driving the profits of the firm and bringing in new clients. So I think that was a unique way of presenting it to me. I, I was, I was, I guess, excited about it. And, and I thought, okay, well, this is not, <laughs> you know, a, I didn't have to go out to a bank and get a huge loan, right? That a lot of times I think that scares, uh, young planners too. the potential of the risk that you have to take early on. So I was able to do, you know, financing, just paying it back to the business, uh, taking a small loan for that portion. Um, and you know, set up on, on a, a portion of revenues. So, uh, what revenues trailing 12 months revenues. And I think it, it probably similarly structured in that capacity, but it was the, just offering it to me very early and having the structure already there, not, not, you know, having me to have to come up with it, <laughs> which I think a lot of young planners also probably have to do, um, and create it themselves. There's several books out there I know. Um, and we're actually discussing that in our study group now, just about succession planning and the idea. So, so with all of the new staff members that you have, I mean, is everybody getting fi- offered 5% of the ownership or I mean, how do you, how do you keep that equitable yeah, that's with a good. growing staff? Right. And no, not everyone now we're trying to actually have more structure around it now. Um, it's been very loose and when we offer ownership, but there's discussions around the idea of that if you are a, a planner and you're generating business then you need to have some sort of ownership shortly after, you know, becoming a planner and, and being involved in bringing in clients. Now we don't have a time frame on that yet. Um, so that's the, the structure for the planners. We're, we're talking about it, it being some formula based on the years of experience uh, and the amount of business that you're bringing in. 
or have brought in basically, or I can't, I can't say just brought in because now we're getting a lot of online leads. And so the business is there. It's just how how many clients you can work with. So it's going to be some sort of formula around that. Now the staff side of things, there is a cap on that. And I think it's around 3% of ownership that staff can, can have or um, non non advisors, I should say. Does that answer the question? Yeah. So you said something interesting there. You said that it's important for planners to have ownership. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, that's not a normal concept that I've heard people talk about. Well, I'll say there's the way we're structured is, you know, we're uh, compensated. Our compensation structure is set up in a way that we're paid on the amount of work we do for a client. Right. And it's a percentage of the revenue that we receive for that. So we're incentivized to uh, keep clients happy, obviously, and continue to build relationships with clients. So if you do that as a planner and you continue, you continue and you're really successful at it at some point, what keeps you from if, if there's frustrations at any point, what keeps you from saying, hmm, maybe I can go out and do this and not have to deal with the frustrations that I'm dealing with? with the way this firm is structured, right? If you have ownership, there's more buy-in. There's more understanding of where you're going and and where you're going together because it's something that you're working on together. (laughs) You have impact. If, If you don't have that, I think there's those doubts can creep in or egos can get involved where they don't need to be because you are comparing yourself to other planners and the business that you're bringing in and you're responsible for this amount x amount of revenue and and that starts to get in your head and you think hmm maybe i'm not as important as i think i am because the owners obviously don't think i am so i think it prevents a lot of those issues that probably happen in a lot of other firms Um, again coming from our perspective we've i think been lucky because we start those conversations early and we just see the way our firm works Um, so I think that helps. Yeah. So did you ever consider going out on your own? I didn't, I never have. I, I, and, and part of it, you know, we talk, I guess a lot of people talk in our industry about the entrepreneurial spirit and that, you know, financial planners by nature have an entrepreneurial spirit. I would say we do, but it's also nice to have people to work with. (laughs) I think it's nice. It's nice to have a a culture, a social aspect of the office. It's nice to have somebody to fall back on if you don't know certain things. I mean, I love being able to walk down the hall and say, have you ever dealt with this with a client? And then how did you communicate it? Right. How did, what resonated with the client when you were communicating and did they actually make a change? You know, I love here and we get to share best practices of, of just the way that we're working with clients. We have, you know, a firm process that we follow, but every interaction with the client is different because they're all different. (laughs) You know, they have different personalities, different circumstances, different goals. So that's what makes our, our industry so exciting, but also so challenging, I think. And so I knew those challenges were there. Um, you know, we're, we're, I guess a unique firm, a, a unique thing about our firm is the overall culture and freedom also that we have to handle things, around our daily life so you know we have a lot of us have families and you know there's a lot of freedom around the idea of if you need to leave and do something with your family if you need to go to your child's you know to meet the teacher night 
uh, go and do it and then just handle your work. Our systems are set up in a way that we have a fantastic CRM that, you know, you know, your task list, you know, the things you need to get done, it tracks your time as well. So, you know, kind of the amount of time that you're going to need to spend on a task generally, <laughs> not perfect there, but so I think a lot of those things just help coordinate those conversations and, and the progress and the success of the overall firm. So I, I never really had a huge desire to go out and say, let me, let me try this different because I think this is working pretty well, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, as we kind of wrap up that topic, is there any advice or anything you would offer for people who do know that they want to be an owner someday? Yeah. Well, I would start with reading some of the books that are out there actually. Um, so, so two things, one, you know, there's, I think Eric Heeman. Um, so Michael Kitsis's podcast is a great reference. You've probably had that mentioned on every mm -hmm. podcast that you've ever done. Um, but he has conversations with, he had two particular conversations, one with the FP transitions founder who has a book that is writing about succession planning. And then Eric uh, Heeman, who wrote it with several other people as well, um, about the conversations and the emotional aspect around succession planning. I hadn't read that yet, but the, the podcast was fantastic. And I think that's a good start of getting your framework right around being an owner. And then, you know, that probably will give you some ideas of how to start. But not to mention, you know, if you know other uh, people in the financial planning industry that are owners, get started talking to them and ask them how their their ownership track is structured and how the deal was handled and, and what you get and what you don't get and how much you're going to have to pay and how that's going to work over how many years. So there's a lot of and what interest rate. <laughs> but I mean, I think it's a great overall asset to have, you know, the, the ownership in a firm because it, it just gives you so many different motivations in the right way to work with clients and, and actually make a difference. Oh, that's great. So right now I want to take a break and we're going to head over to Charlie. Charlie, you've been listening in. What are your thoughts or questions for Chad? Absolutely. So a lot of interns may find themselves scanning and doing what I'll just call safe work. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, how can interns really stand out and get some serious post-classroom experience? Well, one way they stand out is they're a great way to find problems in your system, you know, because they're always, uh, if there, if there's a way to break something generally, an intern could do that. So that, uh, that's just being a little funny, but cause I was there and doing that as well. Um, but I think, so all the years we've been doing it, obviously we've, we've learned how to, I think, do it in a, in a way that makes it a little bit different, but maybe it first started with scanning, but I mean, when I first started, I was doing some manual transaction data entry, you know, um, email and I, I actually did get to email clients, but I was doing, we were doing financial plans and spreadsheets at that point in time, exporting data from software to software to software, because in the financial industry, it's very difficult to find one piece or one solution that integrates everything, as you know. Um, so I would say that in turn, what makes them stand out is when they, well, for one, are, are actually doing the work they're assigned, right? So we can see that, obviously, because our CRM does a great job of, of tracking and if they're closing tasks and workflows, if they're actually getting uh, different transactions or if they're verifying transactions. So those are some of the things they, they do. But we actually have them work on plans as well um, when they have time because we do overload them with things. I mean, that's the reason we pay them because they're, they're doing some grunt work too. 
and it's not the most fun things every day they're coming in and doing there is scanning and shredding and all those things but i think when when they're in there working on plans you know we get to see the result of that we get to see what they know what they don't know we actually sit down and have some meetings with them to discuss after they do that and say okay well why did you do this why didn't you do this and what what are you learning in your classes does you know sometimes it's that they barely know what a mutual fund is um sometimes they already know you know how to to put in uh, social security income they just don't know that there's a cost of living adjustment on it for example so there's little things like that that get lost of course in translation from the classroom i think to the real life experience but you know it does take time but in in training but if you know there's potential for an intern to be a staff member and then potentially a planner down the road i think that it's easier to to say okay well i can take a little time here and spend it training because this is potential investment in our firm down the road so that maybe that's a little bit different in the way that other firms might approach interns okay and hannah this question's for you did you ever break anything during your internship <laughs> all they let me do was touch the scanner so i didn't break that but <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, though. I will add, I forget how intimidated you may feel as an intern sometimes. Um, You know, you don't want to, you know, walk to a a planner or senior partner's office and and bug them all the time with questions because, you know, their their time is valuable and you feel a bit intimidated if, if you're in a big firm. But I do think there can be initiative presented. We have, you know, multiple ways of communicating. We have an instant messenger. We have email or walk in and asking a question. So if if you just send in an email here and there or send in an instant message, that's not going to you know make or break somebody's day and take them off task too far. And it shows that you're curious and you're asking a question about something that you may be working on that you can't figure out because so many times it's just amazing that people don't take initiative, you know, in the world. And, and if you're curious about something, why not just ask a question and, and see where that goes? Now, there is a limit that we don't want you asking questions all the time as an intern and just totally disrupting our, our process. But I, d- I do think you need to show an, uh, some initiative and, and like Hannah, I, I know, I mean, I did scanning as well, but I was like, I, I thought, man, is there something else that I could be doing? You know? And, and so it took me a little bit of time, but I ultimately asked and said, you know, I'd love to learn about, you know, what you're working on with this client. If I, if I saw a client profile or, because I had the files that I actual files at that time I was still putting in folders. I hope that answered it. <laughs> no, that's great. Sorry, we're, we're this is the first time we've done this with handing it off. So I like it. Yeah. Well, thanks, Charlie. Those are great questions. So I want to touch on Chad. You and Mike. I'm assuming assuming that's the main owner. Started the Financial Symmetry Podcast, and your most recent episode is Money Can Buy Happiness. Mm-hmm. What led you guys to starting a podcast? He he's actually not the main owner. We're we're both uh, planners, though, and that's Shoot, sorry. <laughs> that's fine. We, but we uh, we have the most interest in it. I would say. So um, we, I went to FinCon in 2014, 2014, 2015, when it was in Charlotte, and there was a lot of talk about podcasts at that time. And I had already been listening to a lot of podcasts. I had just gotten a car, of course, that had Bluetooth technology, which helps a lot. Um, and, and listening to podcasts because that's when I mainly listened to them. And I thought, man, this is a great way to communicate. We've been toying with the ideas of video or audio on our site because we put a lot of effort into our online presence. 
Um, I hope it shows. But we we thought, hmm, what other ways can we potentially reach clients, communicate ideas or prospects, and it, and it resonate with them? And for me, you know, I thought, for okay, podcasts are really resonating with me, so why not try the podcast? Because I, it seemed like a lot of, or not a lot, but several people at this conference were doing it successfully within the financial space. So I, I actually met with uh, Jared Easley at that time. They had a little podcast meetup i guess and he was i didn't know who he was at the time he sat next to me at lunch and he was like this thing is super easy (laughs) i can actually send you a pdf that shows you all you gotta do is start reading your blog posts and you have a podcast i said really (laughs) i can't imagine it's that easy but it 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 was i looked up i figured out how to buy a, a you know a relatively inexpensive mic and he sent me the file and i the first two of our podcasts are, are me and Mike reading our podcast, are reading our blog posts. So they're not the best, but it, it got us started uh, again, coming back to that first theme. Don't be afraid to try things, right? It, my fear was there. I was like, I'm going to sound stupid on the mic. You know, who's going to listen to this thing? No one's going to really want to listen to us reading our blog post. But I think I had, I had saw an investment news piece where Carl Richards had actually recorded or, or, or talked about the, the piece that he had written. I thought, hmm, okay, well, if nothing else, we'll just throw them up on our blog post on the website and see what happens. But that kind of led to some other ideas of conversations, and Mike and I started throwing across ideas and say, hmm, we get a lot of questions from clients, and we tend to answer a lot of these questions over and over and over. How about we record it, and then when we get asked the next time, we can start sending it to them. And so far, it's been a great way. Uh, we've had great response from clients and others that are listening, and uh, it's fun. We're, I mean, we're somewhat passionate about it. I think you know, sometimes it's hard to come up with a topic, but every once in a while, most of the time, we have a, a long list of questions. We also liked the money guy, right? The guys down in Atlanta, and we heard them at FinCon as well, or I did, and uh, they kind of inspired me to to get about this different way of communicating and they've been doing it for a long time and loved listening to them. I said, let's just try it. So. Well, I love that initiative of it. Like you heard a good idea and you just did it. I feel like so many people get stuck on that step of doing it. Exactly right. Yes. That's great. So how did you, you touched on this a little bit, but is your podcast generating business for your practice or how does it really kind of fit in that puzzle? It has. Yes. Um, So far we've, we've had, so we started December of 2016. I'm sorry, December of 2015. We had one episode at the end of December. So really we've been doing it for a year and a half. And we've had, I would say, six or seven different inquiries um, from people that are actually interested in being clients during that time. Most of those have happened this year. Um, the first year didn't. <laughs> the first year was just getting started. And uh, as I've heard, it takes three years generally to to kind of get into a mastery of of doing a, a process like this uh, and in particular getting people to, to know and hear about your podcast. But yeah, I mean, they've been interesting. You know, I thought who is listening to podcasts, right? You, you kind of get an idea of maybe it's a younger type of person, generally twenties, thirties, maybe forties that would be listening. But the people that are contacting us, uh, half of them have been in their sixties. So, you know, there's, there's opportunity there, I think. And, and it's only continuing to grow each month. It seems, you know, we'll see numbers of downloads and people are going back and downloading old episodes. So 
again, that power of compounding, right? You do something once, it's recorded, it's out there, and people are listening to podcasts we recorded in early 2016 still. So I think that is, there's some real value there. And, you know, but coming up with topics, I mean, there's so many different episodes, but we, we thought this is a way that we're going to do it. We're just going to, we're going to talk about ideas, things we're excited about. We may interview a few people here and there, but really it's different books or different questions we're getting that we're excited about. And we're just going to share what our experience has been. So for the process, I mean, do you have an editor that works with you or, I mean, are you guys doing all of that work or are you guys just not even worrying about the editing side of it? Good question. So we started with, um, we have a marketing firm that we work with and they would come record. That was how it started and they would edit it, but it generally isn't a lot of editing. It was just adding an intro um, and then we just talk. <laughs> so there's not a lot of editing that anything you hear there generally is our mess ups, a lot of ums probably. And, but at some point, you know, I was doing the writing of show notes as well. And I, th- I started to think this is taking a little bit of time and how much is my time worth? You know, I read essentialism, the book by Greg McEwen and started thinking, what is the highest value of my time? So we, we started looking for other options and we did find a, a service um, called cash flow podcasting and they help out with the editing so we just record and we upload it. They edit it. They post it to um, the hosting service and to our website and do show notes. And so it's a very seamless process and they do a great job. Um, and that takes time off of our plate, I think. So we just focus on what we're good at. And that's talking and recording the subject matter and the content. And then after that, they handle it all. So. So as a professional financial planner, how has the podcast helped you? It's helped me feel comfortable, even more comfortable, I should say, because I, 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 I would say that I felt comfortable communicating in meetings with clients uh, because I've been doing it now for you know 17 years. But I think it helps me to be OK with the sound of my own voice and understand that there's things that we can share and that things don't have to be perfect all the time. When you're doing a podcast, I think many of the ones that you listen to that are best are the ones that are just people being real and honest and talking through things and not sounding, you know, perfectly edited all the time. I think some of the side jokes that, you know, Mike and I share in our podcast, I think that that creates character around who we are. So it gets, I think it allows people to understand the way that we communicate before they contact us. And that's powerful. I think all the information that you can have, that's why social media, I think in general, is a great marketing tool because you get to find out things about the person you're going to be working with before you actually contact them and, and maybe find things in common. This is an incredibly personal business. And if you're going to be in a relationship long term with people is what that's what we that's our approach. Generally, we like to be in very long term relationships with clients and we get to know them at a very deep level. Why not allow them to get to know you a little bit before they want to contact you? I'd rather be in a relationship with somebody that that gets me and that gets along with with the type of personality I am, um, because I think that's going to be your best long term relationship. That's great. So do you do a lot of promotion on social media for your podcast or do you just kind of put it up and put it on your website? We try. Uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we try. We, we, we're doing better. Um, so now uh, I think a neat idea that we've implemented recently is 
um, one of our staff members here who kind of handles client communications and and um, emails to clients and other things uh, sends a weekly email to all of us with social media ideas, just three or four p- bullet points. And generally it's our most recent blog post uh, or most recent podcast and maybe an, an article that, that somebody has read that, that sent her last week or she picked up off of our social media profiles that we share. We use Buffer. It makes it a little bit easier because you can just hit a button while you're reading an article and then share it to your you know, social media profiles, mainly Twitter and LinkedIn. We do use Facebook as well, but she manages that kind of on her own. Um, but yeah, so I think we've, we've done a lot better of sharing that. And we've seen some, you, you can tell like when you share an old podcast in particular, um, on either Twitter or LinkedIn, there's, there's more downloads for that in our numbers. So I can tell it works. It's not, it's not like you're, you're getting, you know, thousands of downloads for each share, but you know, each one counts. And I think if it's one person listening, they may be able to get something out of it. And that's our only purpose is really educating clients in particular clients, but also getting the word out to anybody else that's listening that may not be aware of what they're missing a lot of times. And I think generally that's a, that's a great way to communicate those ideas. So. Oh, that's great. So I'd love to talk more about the FPA and just being involved within the profession, on the level of the profession. Uh, you first reached out to me after listening to the History of the Next Gen, History of Next Gen episode. Um, what were your thoughts when you heard that episode? It took me back. <laughs> well, <laughs> one, I like the way you did it. I love that it was different clips of people talking that were involved. Uh, so for me, of course, I knew some of those voices. So it resonated with me and took me back because I was actually at that original conference. Uh, in 2006 and you know that was a time when there was some loose organization I felt like around younger planners across the country there was that core group that had put together the Yahoo message board and you know I kind of joined that in the beginning of uh, 2006 when I learned about the next gen conference that was happening and I was excited about it and and you know I participated. I went there, though. I, I was a little bit in a different spot. It's funny. I, I distinctly remember sitting in the first experience we had there of, of an it was my first experience of an FPA circle. Um, and because I think the, the first conference was designed around an FPA retreat or what the old FPA retreats originally were kind of the, the inspiration for those. So I was sitting in a circle, I don't know, maybe 100, 150 people there, probably about around 100. I stood up and introduced myself, you know, when it came my time and I said, you know, I'm Chad and, and I'm here to kind of learn how I can confidently meet with clients when I look as young as I do. You know, I was brutally honest. I, I didn't, I had met with a few my age at that time, but I still had a insecurity about it. And I sat down and, and I didn't know the person sitting next to me, but it was John Guyton. Um, and he said, he leaned over and said, you already have all the skills you need you know, just, just be confident. I said, Hmm, okay, well, this is a good start. So, you know, I had a great time at the conference, met a lot of, of course, people that, you know, uh, now that you've had on your podcast, Caleb Brown, I had talked with him beforehand, Angie Herbers, and, uh, even some of the older, uh, people, influencers, Bob Virus and Dan Moisan, and just, you know, a lot of the organizers had, had a great time, but, I came back with a renewed purpose. What it did for me was excite me about the potential for working with clients 
and, and, and I felt building my business locally. I think I had a little bit of an insecurity though, um, and around a lack of confidence about how volunteering would be perceived in my firm here when I was just a, a firm, you know, starting out as a new planner. I think it was totally self-manufactured. Um, I don't think it would have been looked down on if I felt like it was going to be valuable and, and wanted to continue going, but I felt like building the business or spending time locally here, spending all my time on that was going to be worth more. Looking back, of course, I think that's a big regret. That's one reason I reached out to you. I feel like, okay, well, you're speaking to young planners here or, or people that are interested in becoming a planner. And since then, of course, I've been involved in a study group that started out of uh, a conference itself much later down the road. It took me eight years to get back to a conference. But I often think, you know, what could I have learned in that eight years or, or what kind of network would have happened out of that? You know, would I have been I just what are all the things I would have learned that I could have shared with clients? How would our firm be better You know, from the things that I learned? There's just a lot of questions that I, I know now because I have the study group that I talk with and, and I'm getting great feedback from those guys. Um, by the way, we call ourselves the Cracker Jacks. I don't know. People probably don't really know what that means. It's not because we crack a lot of jokes, although we do and we have fun with that. But a Cracker Jack is actually, if you look it up, it's a person or thing that shows marked ability or excellence. Did not know that, right? <laughs> One of the guys kind of shared that early on. I thought, hey, that, that kind of fits us. And now we send pictures of Cracker Jack boxes every time we're at a baseball game across the country because we are in different states and things. And, and some of them are former FBA uh, next-gen leaders, actually, six of us. But anyway, that's beside the point. It's been a great influence. Just makes me realize how much I might have missed out early on on that experience. And um, so I'm glad you shared that because I think there's probably other people out there like me that were at that first conference that are not engaged, not involved in giving back. And, you know, how could that have compounded over time if we would have all been more involved in giving back? So why not start now? <laughs> Oh, that's great. I love that. Uh, so if I remember right, one of your employees just went to Next Gen Gathering. Yeah, he went last year. I think that was one year. of our podcast episodes on um, what do you get out of uh, FBA Next Gen Gathering? It was Cameron Hendricks. So, yeah, he went to Texas, I think. Oh, that's great. So I think you'll have a really good perspective here um, that our listeners can benefit from. So one of the questions that I kept hearing at gathering was what were the attendees supposed to say to their bosses when they got home and how would they frame that? From mm -hmm. your perspective, what, how should somebody answer that question? I would say that's a, first of all, a great question and an honest one because I felt that as well, right? That's part of the reason I felt that that lack of confidence about going back because I didn't, I mean, it was great inspiration for me um, going there and learning about how different, different firms, but I think are operated. But I think what I discounted was the value you can get from learning about how other firms operate. You know, there may be fear from founders or senior staff or senior advisors in your firm that you're going to go to a gathering and you're going to meet, you know, another person and then you're going to jump to their firm. There may be some of that fear, but I think if you go back and share how inspired you were and if you say, you know, I met this person and we were talking and I think there's some potential that I'd love to learn more about the processes they use and the systems and the technology 
you know, and the structure, organizational structure of how their firm works and then see what we can pick up from that. We actually went down to, I think uh, it's a program with the FPA foundation or the financial planning foundation where you can be our guest and in a firm, if, you know, you can contribute to the financial planning foundation and then go in for a day and, and be at a firm and, and learn about their processes and everything they do. And that was incredibly valuable. You know, we did that down at Abacus in South Carolina and, and they were just so open Cheryl was about sharing all the things they do, the processes. And, and I think when you have that, and I know it gets talked about a lot in our industry, that abundance mentality, right. Versus that scarcity mentality. So if you have the abundance mentality and share about your processes, I mean, who knows how many people are going to be helped by that, right? We all know there's a shortage of planners anyway. So I think if you can just go back, bring it back home here, <laughs> I could tend to meander on these answers a little bit, but bring it back home. If you're a, an attendee of gathering and you come back to your firm and you say, I met some people that are very interesting at different firms and I, I'm excited to learn more about how their firm works. And there's a potential for me maybe to, to start a study group where I could ease, more easily learn and establish relationships. That would be enough. Now, I mean, I'm in a study group, so I, you know, <laughs> you're talking to the audience here that that already knows how that works. So if your if your owner doesn't do that, or your any of your ownership senior partners don't participate in that, then it could be a, a little more of a struggle. But why not try and start with that? Because I think there's amazing value in that that people don't realize. Oh, I love all of that. So. I mean, there's other conferences outside of Next Gen Gathering. Um, so with a young advisor how should the, or support staff, how should they approach their employer to get them to help them go to conferences? Yeah, that, that will likely be more of a struggle, I would say. Um, I think it obviously starts with the leadership of the firm. It makes it a lot easier if the leadership is open to um, – people going to conferences and allowing part of their budget to be for that. If, if it's not, I, I think that's where you're, you're getting at with the question. Um, you need to find an avenue or an angle of a conference that might benefit the firm in some way. I mean, you know, it's, it, it comes back, this is a business, right? So you're looking for ways to help your business. You, you I mean, you want to grow personally for sure, and I think a conference can do both of those. So find an angle that you feel like can help your firm in whatever conference. I'll give an example. So, you know, in 2014 or 2015, whenever I first went to FinCon, that was, <laughs> you know, I mean, that was a conference that was started around financial blogging, right? So it's not something that was organized for financial advisors, but there was an actual financial advisor track at this one. So there was some, you know, sessions going on that were discussing how financial advisors were using social media. We, we were doing that, but we didn't, you know, we're not communicating with a lot of other firms on how they do that. Or I wasn't in a study group at that time. So I thought, hmm, this is an avenue. I felt like that I, th I think our firm could benefit from this. So I shared that with our owners and said, this is, I think this is worth it for me. I'm, I'm willing to pay for it out of my pocket, you know, but we have a budget for that. So that's another avenue you could take. Now, some conferences are very expensive, of course, but you could say if it's valuable enough, you think take the initiative and pay for it and then come back to your firm and say, I learned this, this and this. 
what about what do you think about these options and how we do them? And then maybe ask for reimbursement at that point if you can prove that, you know, it, it benefited the. I would also say, though, if your firm is not um, open to that idea, then maybe that's an issue with the culture of the firm, too, because there's natural improvements that can be gained when by going to a conference. I think there's great, great writing about I think Michael Kitsis also has a great article about that on his site of all the things you can you learn at conferences so not to mention the confidence that it may give you alone if you're an advisor and you're working with clients i think there's the way you communicate with clients ultimately is the end goal right getting behavioral change accomplishing the things that they want to do and many times that comes back to how you empathize how you listen and how you communicate and i think all three of those can be improved by going to a conference. Well, and, you know, the perspective of, you know, we tell our clients to, you know, invest money in obviously into the stock market, but this is also a way to invest in ourselves. Right. You know, it's, you go to a conference, you pay out of your own pocket. Well, you know, it might give you a benefit right away, but it also could give you the contact that's going to help you get your next job or the contact that, you know, in 30 years, these things matter. Um, that's a great so point. That's a great point because we're not afraid to spend on, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on college, right? Yeah. And t- and take loans for them. But many times, I think young people are scared to to pay a, a conference fee and a, a plane flight to go to a conference. So, so before we wrap up, I want to talk about study groups. I know you've mentioned your group. How did you find your study group? So this is the power of social media. I actually uh, saw, spotted a picture of um, Josh Brown, the reform broker, had come to Chapel Hill. And there was a picture with a a planner in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, down the road from me a bit. And I I looked at, you know, I I checked him out on Twitter and I I saw that he had lived in Raleigh and and saw we had some things in common. I contacted him and I said, how how do we not know each other yet? And he, he got back to me and said, you know, we were actually, we had done some of the same things in Raleigh. We went to the same school. So there was a natural connection there. But we said, we're both going to NAPFA. Let's meet up there, the, the NAPFA conference in Charlotte. So we met up there and, and talked. And, and he kind of started the idea of, we'd met some other guys there, uh, of getting these guys together and doing a regular kind of monthly call and seeing how that goes. So we do a Google Hangout every month. Now it's every three weeks. And been doing it since the end of 2014. And now we have a retreat every year that we actually go and meet in person. We've been down to a, a lake twice. And we went skiing out in Colorado last or this past March. So and then we've added uh, we added uh, another person um, actually a year after we got started because we felt like six would be a good number. That way, we, if we had a call and we had two missing, you know, then we could still have a call uh, and it'd be meaningful. And we there's a lot of structure around it. Um, actually, got started with the influence. Uh, Jude Boudreau was our first. Uh, he was on our first call and kind of gave us some framework of how he had structured his group. So, I think there's there's just incredible value. But yeah, if it wasn't for social media, I don't. I, mean, I probably wouldn't be in that group. So, oh, that's great. And so, how has your study group benefited you personally and as a professional? Multiple ways, personally. So. Well, I'll go professional first. So it's been great to communicate with other people at other firms at different sizes to learn how they do things, what works, what 
doesn't work. And there's been incredible value that we've been able to take in adapting certain things we're doing in a better way because of things I learned from the study group. So professionally, I think it's also given me a comfort level in being able to discuss things with them, um, different client issues potentially or ways I've communicated with clients. And so it's helped me overall in multiple ways of being able to get across certain concepts, I think. So that's, that's been a beneficial thing that will only continue to improve. Personally, it holds me accountable. Um, family wise. I mean, we get, we get into things outside of professional areas, family wise, our faith and, and just kind of understanding who we are as men. So that's kind of just how we've structured it and what our ultimate, ultimate purpose is. I think it gives it a little bit of a deeper meaning. Um, and then doing fun things together builds the relationships deeper. Right. And they're all different from me. You know, they're, they're very at different places in their firms. They're different personalities and, but we all find ways to get together and, and really have a good time. And I think it's paid multiple dividends and will continue to down the road. Oh, that's great. So as we wrap up, is there any other thoughts or Charlie, any questions from you that come to mind? Sure, like a post-game wrap-up here. <laughs> we had sure. halftime, so we need a post-game. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I've got a, I do have a question for Chad. So from the first half, you talked uh, a little bit about maybe the structure uh, that they had for uh, becoming an owner, you know, taking part in, in, in earning some ownership or buying that ownership. Mm-hmm. In a similar way, do you all have the structure uh, in regards to like maybe your junior planners, even maybe the interns uh, to help, you know, not push or promote, but to try to get them to go to conferences or be, to be active in professional organizations? We do for advisors, um, but not for, for the staff yet. We don't have a structure around that. I mean, we talk about it in meetings uh, about the value of, of the things that we're learning from a study group or a conference. So I think the expectation is there that they can. But each of the advisors has a, a, a budget every year of how they spend their continuing education dollars, so to speak. So we could do that in any way um, that we need to or want to and, and attend whatever conferences we want to. So, you know, that structure is there, but we had to have conversations about it and, and not all advisors use it, not all want to, but it's there if, if you want to, it's use it or lose it like an FSA. <laughs> uh, it doesn't continue on. So, um, but I think there's certainly that helps obviously, right. To, to kind of motivate people to want to go to a conference, but I, that's a great point. I think with the staff, that may be something that we need to talk about more and, and um, because I think there could be some things learned there as well for them. Well, and it would show a lot of initiative if one of your staff members said, there's not a budget, but I'm still going. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned FinCon 2014, which we were at, which is kind of a fun thing right there. Yeah. But that's not normally, uh, say, like a conference that a financial planner might go to. I love that you went outside of kind of what was normal. And one of the things I think is great about that when you're talking about before interns, you know, breaking things or trying new stuff is sometimes they bring outside perspective. If there was a junior planner or an intern, maybe at another company, what would be the best way maybe to frame or pitch the idea to take advantage of, of some of these outside ideas that maybe their firm's not taking advantage of if they don't have a podcast or even an online presence? You know, how should they frame that pitch to someone with ownership? <laughs> Great question. Number one, be organized in whatever you're going to be pitching. So I think you need to have some sort of 
um, rationale behind it that makes sense of why it might be a good idea. Um, number two, maybe if you can do some research and find examples of where it may be working at other firms. Um, now, with a podcast, for example, that's a new idea completely. But if you can frame it in, this may be another way for for clients to actually digest information. Um, that's that may not be enough. You know, you gotta there, there's got to be some incentive, of course, for the owners to to be on board with that. However, I, I do think there's opportunity in sharing ideas, and if you get shot down, keep trying. You know, I mean, that's that's persistence matters a lot in these types of things and it may be that you present it the first time and it's not said as eloquently as you need it to be said and then down the road you try again i mean with social media for example that you know we were in the same boat with a lot of other firms and we delayed it for probably longer than we should um, because we didn't have an archiving system and we didn't want to deal with a review system for the compliance department to to go over every tweet or every LinkedIn post, but I think that put us behind the, the eight ball, so to speak. And there was other people probably out there that were using it better earlier on. And so there, some of those realizations that you, you come across and if you can point to the things that you might feel like were mistakes that other firms made, that might be a, a good rationale. So I don't know, provided a few things there, but I think it's a tough conversation. You just, but you got to start again and, and, and try with a certain pitch and see where it goes with honors. Take the risk. Yes. <laughs> Before I leave, uh, Hannah to close you out here. Uh, so if you were to write a book based on your experiences in the profession and at your firm, what would the title of the book be called and what would the last chapter be about? Oh, gosh. Man, that's a good question. But the first word that came to mind is try. Try, period. The first chapter would be you know, here are the regrets that I have and list them off and say, I wonder if I would have just tried, would I still have those regrets? So here's how to not do that. <laughs> I don't, I, I will never write a book though. Sure. And then the last chapter. Oh, the last chapter. Well, I guess would be a summary of all the things that I have tried and how they've worked. <laughs> okay. How about that? That's a pretty good on the fly uh, yeah, book summary right there, right? I'm yeah. impressed. Right. Yeah. So as we wrap up, Chad, is there any other final thoughts that you want to leave our listeners with? Let's see. Lessons. I, I went across, I mean, I kind of went over number one, joining a study group, I would say, right. Working through the CFP coursework, a lot of programs already kind of walk through that. Right. I mean, you kind of have to have that after you're um, going through the first process, I would say, listen to podcasts. <laughs> I know where if you're listening to this one, keep listening to other ones because there's some great ones out there. I mean, there's, it's just incredible free content. Like you are in a class listening to some of the smartest people in the world, potentially not me, but other people, um, that, that share these ideas and you can listen to it in your car. You can listen to it while you're mowing the grass. And it's like, you're getting a college class for free. You know, um, a great one I've been listening to is how I built this on NPR. You know, they talk about just companies, how they get started in real short snippets, 20, 30 minutes of the CEOs. That should be a class in school. Right. Um, so there's a lot of other great ones. Anything Michael Kitsis does, of course, is, is fantastic. When you're first starting, I think he, he just writes very long descriptions of how to learn things and get started. But if you I mean, if you couple that, you should have a with with other industry 
things that you're reading, you should have a, a decent base of an idea of what the financial plan, planning industry is. And lastly, I would leave you with, don't be afraid to try, kind of try to find out how you can help someone upon meeting them versus thinking of how you could benefit. That would be on that first chapter of try for me, because I feel like early on in my career, I was always looking for a way for how I could benefit in a conversation. And now it's much different as I've worked with clients over the years, so many clients so I've had all these great conversations and, and it's neat to find ways that you get to help them and not, not just with financial planning. A lot of times you can help them in other ways. I read this quote the other day that I guess I'll close with wherever there's a human being, there's an opportunity for kindness. I think if you use that as kind of a philosophy, as you're moving through your, your profession or your journey to become a financial planner, you'll benefit greatly down the road. Thanks for listening to this episode of your financial planner. Now what? As a reminder, if you passed your CFP exam this past week, we want to celebrate with you. Send me an email at hannah at guidingwealth.com with your address, and we have something to send you. We'll talk again next week.